On Sunday mornings, we're making our way through the Gospel of Mark. And last week, we ended at Mark chapter 1, verse 34. And the end of that section described a, a very busy day that Jesus had in the region of Galilee, in the city of Capernaum. Jesus started out that day by going to the synagogue and preaching. And before he left the synagogue, he had delivered a a man who was afflicted, possessed by an unclean spirit, and he had cast out that unclean spirit. Then as the day went on, Jesus went over to the home of Peter, and he ministered unto Peter's mother-in-law, and healed her of a grave sickness that she was under. And then that evening, Jesus had a very busy schedule, if you will. If you take a look at verse 32, it says, Now at evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Well, that's the end of a very busy day, don't you think? Jesus would have spent a lot of time ministering to the needs of these people. The healing, the the deliverance from these demonic spirits. all, All the ministry that Jesus did that evening. Now, who of us would blame Jesus if he slept in the next morning. But he didn't. Look at verse 35. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Isn't that amazing? None of us would blame Jesus if he would have slept in that day. He had a very busy day. God had used him immensely the day before. His popularity was increasing in front of the crowds. Yet, having risen a long while before daylight, Jesus made less time for sleep and more time for prayer. Many of us feel that we really don't have time to pray as we would like to. We hold it up as kind of like a goal in front of us. You know, I would like to pray more. I'd like to do that. It's something I should do. But for many of us, we take a look at our lives and we feel like we just don't have the time. Like, I, I don't have the time to pray as I should. You don't know how busy my life is. Let me make a bold suggestion to you based on Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Get up earlier. Some of you are astonished that such a thing could be done. Well, I mean, that's what Jesus did. Maybe Jesus figured that the coming day would be so busy that if he was going to take time out to spend with his father, he'd have to get up early to do it. And so what did he do? He rose a long while before daylight. He knew that that communion with his father was more important than the sleep he would get. So the text tells us in verse 35 that he prayed. Jesus didn't have to pray because he was weak. He prayed because he was strong, and he knew that the source of his strength was his relationship with God the Father. Jesus knew that the pressure and the busyness of the day, that it should drive us towards prayer, not away from it. And so he prayed. Now, do you ever wonder what Jesus prayed for in those solitary times with he and his Father? I think as much as anything, Jesus used this time for that close, intimate communion with God the Father that he longed for, and that communion that nourished and strengthened his soul. Jesus had a passion for that. I mean, you consider that that Jesus, he, he didn't begin his existence as a baby in Bethlehem. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's he's God the Son. 
enthroned in glory before he came down as a babe in Bethlehem. And enthroned in glory, God the Son had fellowship and communion with God the Father all the time. And now there's at least a a geographic distance between them that there wasn't before. And Jesus longs to go back into the throne room, back into the presence of of his heavenly Father, and just commune, to spend time with him. We can also surmise that Jesus prayed for himself, that Jesus prayed for his disciples. I would imagine that on a morning like this, he would pray for everybody that he had ministered to previously the night before. I mean, faces flash in his mind and needs and names, and he prays for those people. And then he probably prayed ahead for the people that he would meet in the coming day. Lord, I don't know who I'm going to meet. I don't know their names, but you know them. And I pray for them ahead of time that you'd help me to meet their needs and to bless their hearts. Jesus knew the value of prayer. Might I say that Jesus knew the value of of something that that I think we sometimes neglect. It says in verse 35 that he departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Jesus knew the power of getting alone with just he and his heavenly Father in prayer. Now It's good, and, and it's important for us to join with others into the presence of God. There's wonderful things that God wants to do when his people come together in prayer, in worship, in the Word. But there are things in our Christian life that can only be learned, that can only be experienced in the solitary place with God. And Jesus knew those things. Now this is more than that kind of I pray all the time kind of prayer. Oftentimes when I'm talking with somebody about prayer, they they say that often. They say, I pray all the time. And, And that's good prayer. All the time kind of prayer is good prayer, and we should be living and walking our lives. As Paul said, we should pray without ceasing, and every moment of the day be in that constant line of communication with our Heavenly Father and all the needs that come up while we're driving down the road, while we're standing in line, while we're just in a constant fellowship and communion, lifting up things, thanking Him, listening to Him, that constant fellowship. But, but that isn't prayer in the solitary place. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus lived in that constant prayer without ceasing, that constant communion with his Father? Of course he did. More intimately than you and I ever will. Yet he knew the value. He knew he needed to go to a solitary place and pray. Friends, it's wonderful if you have that I pray all the time prayer. That's good. But you need to add to that Prayer in times where you shut away the distractions, where you're like Jesus. You get away to a time where it's just you and Jesus. And and it's good that you pray when you're driving. Praise God for that. But you're distracted by things, or at least I hope you are, if you're driving on the same road I'm driving on. (laughs) There's things around you. It's good that you pray, you know, on the job. That's wonderful. But you need prayer in the solitary place where there's nothing else, where there's no other people, there's no other distractions, where it's you and your heavenly Father. That's missing in some of our lives. But Jesus shows us the way to do that. Now look, it's, it's interesting what follows up on this. Verse 36, it says, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. 
They wake up in the morning and Jesus isn't around. Where would Jesus go? There's a crowd starting to gather. They want to see Jesus. Where's Jesus? We better find him. Now, I think this was early in the ministry of Jesus, as we know sort of chronologically here in the Gospel of Mark. We're just in chapter 1. I think later in his ministry, after his disciples had been with him for a while, they knew, well, whenever you can't find Jesus, he's off praying somewhere. But they didn't know this yet, so they're looking all around. Finally, Peter stumbles upon Jesus, and he finds him. Uh, Look at it here, verse 37. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. I can just imagine Peter or the other disciples, they're so excited. Jesus, you're a big success. Your polling numbers are way up. There's a huge crowd to see you. They love you. They can't get enough of you. Your busy day of ministry yesterday in the city of Capernaum, man, it went off big. And now more people than ever want to see you. This is great. Jesus, this is just what we've been looking for. They're all excited. And they explain this to Jesus. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 38. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. I bet this made the disciples just stop and scratch their heads. They said, Jesus, you don't get it. I mean, finally, I mean, we always wanted to be following a rabbi and be disciples of a famous rabbi, of somebody well-known that everybody loves. And here it is, look, you're getting famous here. They love you. Once you ride the crest of this popularity, once you ride the crest of this fame for a while, Jesus, come on. Jesus was not interested in fame. Jesus was not interested in celebrity status. His passion was to preach the word of God and to minister to people's needs in a humble way. And so he said, you know what? We've done a good work here in Capernaum. Let's go to some other places. We'll come back here later. The disciples said, just when it's getting good here, we're leaving? Jesus said, yes, because I've got a job to do. I'm going to go preach in other towns as well. That's what Jesus did. Look at it here in verse 38. Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. That's why Jesus came. Friends, sometimes we can miss that in the Gospel of Mark, because the Gospel of Mark is a book that emphasizes the deeds of Jesus, not the teaching of Jesus. Mark is very focused on what Jesus did, yet he wants us to know at the same time that Jesus' main ministry was to preach. Jesus was a preacher who did marvelous miracles. He wasn't a miracle worker who occasionally preached. And so look, this is what he says, for this purpose I've come forth, and that's to go around and to preach. And so he does, and they go, and they, they leave all throughout these different places. And One of the places they came to, we find about it here in, in verse 40. Where we, then a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. A leper came to Jesus. Leprosy was one of the horrific diseases of the ancient world. It's still in the world today. I, I read a statistic that says that leprosy afflicts 15 million people across the world today, mostly all in third world countries, but it's still an affliction in the world today. It's a terrible disease. You know, it begins as as small red spots on your skin. Before too long, those red spots kind of get bigger, and then they they, they start to turn white. By now, you're getting concerned. And, And those white spots begin to have sort of a shiny or a scaly appearance. And then the spots break out over your whole body. That's uncomfortable enough, but then your hair starts to fall out. First at the head, 
then even your eyebrows fall out. As things get worse, your, your fingernails and your toenails, they get kind of loose on your fingers and toes, and they just sort of fall off. Then the joints of your fingers and your toes begin to deteriorate. Actually, you're rotting is what's happening. They sort of rot away, and your fingers and toes begin to fall off. Your gums begin to shrink and recede, and they can't hold your teeth anymore. And so your teeth fall out one by one. And finally, in the advanced stages, the disease keeps eating away at your face until literally your nose, your palate, and even your eyes rot away until you die. It's a horrible, horrible disease. And as bad as it was physically, it was also bad socially and in the community. You might think that somebody who suffered so greatly that it aroused the compassion of people. It didn't. It aroused disgust and revulsion from people. People stayed as far away from lepers as they could. God said that, that in the Old Testament that when there were lepers in Israel that they should be carefully examined and quarantined. But the people in Jesus' day took that many steps further and they practiced the worst kind of exclusion and discrimination. They, they made lepers walk around and anywhere they went in the company of people they had to shout out, unclean, unclean, so that people would know to stay away from them. Lepers had to dress like people who were in mourning for the dead because people considered lepers to be the living dead. And all these practices were taken, not so much because leprosy is contagious. It's really not a very contagious affliction. No, but because God originally said, I want this disease to be a striking example of sin and its effects upon us. And so they took the provisions much further than the Old Testament scriptures did. The rabbis in Jesus' day used to write and used to almost brag about how cruel they could be to lepers. One uh, rabbi wrote and he said, if I'm in a marketplace and I see a leper in there, I'll never buy an egg at that marketplace. Another rabbi liked to brag that whenever he saw lepers, he'd pick up rocks and he'd throw them at them to drive them away. Back then, they thought two things when they saw a leper. Number one, they, they thought... You are the walking dead. And number two, they thought, you deserve this, and this is the punishment of God against you. Friends, this was a heavy, heavy thing. And so when this man comes to Jesus, look at it there in verse 40. A leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him. You can sense the urgency in this man, can't you? He has no other hope than a miracle from God. Friends, leprosy just doesn't get better. It doesn't just go into remission. It's a death sentence. And this man knew that it would take a miracle. Now, he also knew, or he, at least he could have been somewhat aware, that well, Jesus, as far as we know, had never healed a leper before. This wasn't on his resume, so to speak. But if it, Jesus, you can do this. And look at the confidence he has in his statement. He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The leper believed in the power of Jesus, and he had full confidence that Jesus could heal him. So look, he says, you can make me clean. And he doesn't say heal, he says, make me clean. It's because this man had a deep awareness of his own sinfulness. For him, the leprosy wasn't just a physical affliction, but everybody treated him his whole life, for the whole time he had the leprosy at least, as someone who was a, a sinner, as someone who's cursed from God. He doesn't just want to be healed, he wants to be made clean. 
So look at what our Lord does for this man. Verse 41. And Jesus moved with compassion, put out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. Isn't that beautiful? Now, Jesus could have just spoken the word, right? There's power in the words of Jesus. He could have just said, I'm willing, be cleansed. And the man would have been healed. He didn't have to reach out, stretch forth his hand and touch him, but he did. Why? Think of how long it had been that that man had had a loving touch. Matter of fact, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 12, Dr. Luke tells us that this man was full of leprosy. In other words, the disease was in its advanced stages. This man, his whole life, his whole body was rotting away. It had been a long time since someone had given him a loving touch, but Jesus stretched forth his hand and he touched him. And can you imagine how that must have restored the soul of that man as much as the healing would have restored his body? What a beautiful thing. Jesus knows our needs. He knows them more deeply than even we know them. But there was a problem with this, of course. You know, it was against the Jewish ceremonial law to touch a leper. If you touched a leper, you became unclean ceremonially. It didn't mean you caught his disease, but the, the unclean state that he had before God was transferred to you, and you had just transgressed the law of God, and you had to go through a special purification ceremony. So Jesus, what are you doing? Can you imagine the horrified look on his disciples' face? There's Jesus. He's reaching out to touch this man. But they remembered it. I mean, look at it here in verse 41. It says, Jesus moved with compassion. Other people looked at this leper and they were filled with disgust. They were filled with revulsion. Jesus was filled with love, compassion towards the man. He reaches out his hand. The disciples are horrified. Jesus, you're going to make yourself unclean. Jesus, he touches the man. Jesus, you've just broken the law. You touched a leper. And Jesus says, what leper? He got rid of the evidence. Look at it here, verse 42. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Isn't that great? There is no more leper. How can you say I touched the leper? Where is he? There is no leper. He's gone. His skin is as smooth as a baby's. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus did something that was impossible here. Impossible in the eyes of man. But he did it. What power Jesus has. And how he exercises his power with incredible compassion, with an incredible loving touch. Now look at what happens here, verse 43. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way and show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Isn't this amazing? Jesus very strictly spoke to the man and said, I don't want you to tell anybody. Now, how do you keep this in? <laughs> the disciples, again, they're probably saying, Jesus, what do you, th- uh, Jesus, this is our best one yet. Let, let's get the before and the after picture. We'll put it in a nationwide media campaign. This is prime, Jesus. You don't, you don't know what you're doing. Tell nobody. They're thinking, you know, you cast a demon out of the guy, and you can't see any difference, you know, but here you can see it. It's amazing. Jesus says, no, no, don't tell anybody. Jesus wasn't interested in fame. Jesus wasn't interested in celebrity status. He knew that if the news went about, that the crowds would press upon him and it would make him less able to do what he was called to do. 
Jesus was concerned with doing what his father had given him to do, not with fame, not with celebrity. Look at what the man did, verse 45. But he went out and he began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city. It was outside in deserted places, but they came to him from every quarter. Now, Jesus told the man, don't tell anybody, just go to the priests and have them do the the ceremony that's prescribed in the law for the cleansing of a leper. Now, if you go back to the pages of the Old Testament, you'll find that they had a very specific ceremony that they would go through, a ritual, whenever a leper was cleansed. Do you know how often the priests in Jerusalem actually did that ceremony? Like, never. Because people didn't get healed from leprosy. But today they did. Could you imagine what a testimony that would be to the priest? I'm Mr. Priest, I need to do a ceremony. Okay, well, what ceremony do you need? I need the ceremony for the cleansing of a leper. And then after he convinced him that he really was cleansed from leprosy, that priest would have to blow the dust off of that part of the scroll and figure out how we do this one, because we've never done this ceremony before. What a testimony. And that's just what Jesus wanted the man to do, but instead, what did he do? Instead, well, he went out and he spread the word around a little bit. So much so that the crowds are pressing in upon Jesus and he can't do ministry the way he had intended. He has to go out to these distant places and the people flock to him from there. See how this man's well-intentioned disobedience, I don't think he meant any harm. What harm could come? I'll just tell people what happened. But listen, his well-intentioned disobedience hindered the ministry of Jesus. Now look what happens here into chapter 2, verse 1. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, no, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. Well, you get the scene, don't you? Jesus comes back to the city of Capernaum. He's preaching in a house. Maybe it's the house of Peter. Maybe it's a house where he healed Peter's mother-in-law. We really don't know for sure, but he's preaching in a house, and the crowds are pressing him. He's famous, and, and people want to hear this message, and so they're crowding into the house, and you know how crowded something like that can be. There's hardly room to, to stand around. People are pressing in on one another, and then sort of late to the meeting come these four men carrying another man on a stretcher. The, the man on the stretcher's paralyzed and his four friends are bringing him because they know that Jesus can heal him and they come and they see well they can't even see the house because there's all these people in front of the house I mean not only is there a crowd in the house there's a huge crowd outside of the house and it's like we'll never get in there we'll never be able to bring our friend to Jesus and our friend will never get in what's going to happen we need our friend to come to Jesus so what happens look at verse four and when they could not come near him because of the crowd They uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. This is great. They look around. They're carrying the man on the stretcher. The crowd's huge. Everybody's milling about. They're straining to listen to Jesus. Then one of them will never get in there. Then they look to the side, and there's a stairwell going up to the top of the house, which was very common in those days, because a lot of times they would use the house, the top of it, as sort of a patio. And so, well, there's a stairwell going up top, and they go, I know, one of them gets a bright idea. It's always trouble when somebody gets a bright idea like that, and they, they carry the man up there. Can you imagine what it was like for the man on the stretcher going up those stairs? No, bump, 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 all the way up. They finally get up at the top, the guy on the stretcher is moaning because he got banged around so much. I know what we'll do. We'll take apart the ceiling here, and we'll drop him down through the roof. 
And so the, the, the ceiling was made of, of beams and slats laid across with, with earth on top of it, and then sometimes often even grass. And so they start clearing it away and taking it apart. And here's Jesus preaching the message on the inside. Well, there's all this noise up there, first of all, from the guys going up the stairs. You know, everybody's quiet inside the house because they're straining to listen to Jesus. You hear all this noise going, and then finally the roof starts coming apart upside. And then you know those four guys, you know they're yelling at each other. You know, what? move that one. No, now go grab this rope. You know, tie it in. Jesus, is, he's probably standing back looking at the whole situation. And then can you imagine what it looked like when they lowered the guy down? The stretcher tied with four ropes, each guy in a rope, and they're lowering him down before Jesus. Now, you know what's funny about it? Do you know how hard it would be to do it evenly? And so, you know, one side's tilting, and then the other side's tilting, and the crowd's petrified. They're wondering when this guy in the stretcher's going to fall off. Jesus is probably just standing back. Jesus is probably cracking up is what he's probably doing. This is amazing, he's saying. Never had a sermon interrupted like this. It's just amazing. So there he is. He's preaching the word to them, but he has to stop because this man on the stretcher comes down right in front of him. You know, isn't it a blessing what good friends this paralyzed man had? They loved him. They really loved him. I mean, if, they're, if you're willing to do this for somebody, you love somebody. You know what else is great? It is they really wanted to bring their friend to Jesus. I hope you have friends in your life that are like that. And I hope that you are a friend like that for somebody else. You really love them and you want to bring them to Jesus. Anyway, look what happens here. Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. This is great. First of all, he saw their faith. He saw it. How can you see faith? It's not like we have, you know, faith-o-meters on our chest, you know, and it measures faith. But when Jesus saw the lengths that these men would go to to bring their friend to Jesus, he said, these guys have faith. They know that I can do a healing. They wouldn't go out of this trouble unless they had faith. In addition, they wouldn't lower this guy down. You know, it would be a lot harder to pull him up than it would be to lower him down. They're counting on that guy walking out of there is what they're counting on. And Jesus, he, he saw their faith. I, I mean, I think if our faith is real, it should be able to be seen. People will be able to see it. You can talk all day. Well, I've got a lot of faith. You just keep it all bottled up inside of you. But can anybody see your faith? Would you ever do anything that's out on the edge for the Lord? And people can say, listen, this guy might be crazy, but I can tell he trusts God. He believes in God. He believes Jesus can meet this need. I mean, just look at him. Jesus could see it in these four men, and they lowered him down, and there he is. And Jesus, the guy stops in front of him. Everybody's quiet. They're wondering what's going on. So Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Isn't that classic? What do you think the four guys up on top of the roof said? He said, no, look, he's paralyzed. (laughs) They're thinking, he doesn't get it at all, this Jesus fella. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. And look here, verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, they're they're thinking along the right lines. You know, nobody can forgive sins but God alone. No one. 
Forgiveness is a work that God does. And for Jesus to stand up and to, in front of this crowd and in this authoritative way to pronounce this man forgiven, well, it was a radical claim to deity is what it was. And they understood that. Now, I don't think Jesus said it because the man was a notorious sinner. I don't think Jesus said it necessarily because his paralysis was directly related to some sin in his life. I think Jesus said it because he knew that this man was in this condition because we're all in a sinful condition. We all live under the burden of a sinful, fallen world. And that's why sin and sickness and and paralysis are in this world. But Jesus knew that this man's greatest need was for forgiveness. Even greater than his paralysis was the need for forgiveness that he had in his life. Jesus knew very well that that it was no good if this man had two healthy legs and he walked straight into hell with them. And so the first thing he did was pronounce forgiveness, but it created a stir among the scribes who can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus would not argue with their logic, but he doesn't understand, I'm God among you. I have the authority to forgive sins. By the way, let's remember that. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And I say that this morning because there may be some of you this morning who are struggling with the idea that you say, I know God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. That can be a terrible burden to live under. Well, let me give you a very freeing, liberating thought this morning. You don't need to forgive yourself. Just let God do it. Just just forget about forgiving yourself. No one can forgive sins but God alone. Let the Lord do it. And let his forgiveness be so great in your life that it covers over any, any difficulty you have towards yourself. Let his forgiveness overwhelm all of that. Because he can do it. Well, look here, verse 8. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Oh, they're busted now, aren't they? Can you imagine the looks on their faces when Jesus read their hearts? Verse 9. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? Very interesting question that Jesus asks them. Now, he said, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or arise, take up your bed, and walk. He didn't say which is easier to do. Which is easier work to do? To make a dark heart filled with sin clean before God, or to heal somebody from paralysis? Well, it's easier to do the healing from paralysis. A doctor, perhaps, with a surgical thing could could do something to heal the man, But no doctor in and of himself can change that man's heart and bring a clean heart, a heart that's white as snow where there was a black heart. Now, it's easier to do the healing. But which is easier to say? That's what Jesus said. Look at it there again in verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you. Because we don't have like a little forgiveness button on our forehead You know, it flashes green when you're forgiven and and red when you're unforgiven. So everybody could immediately tell what the man's status was. Oh, you could say, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. And how could you tell? But if you say, arise, take up your bed and walk, well, the proof's in the pudding right there, isn't it? Either man's going to get up and walk or he isn't. Jesus is going to say, if I have the authority to make this man walk, then you're going to have to take it on faith that I have the authority to forgive his sins. Look at it right here, verse 10. 10, 
that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go your way to your house. And immediately, everything happens immediately in the Gospel of Mark, right? And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Imagine the tension in the scene here. The, the, the scribes are tense, aren't they? Because Jesus challenged them. The, 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 the paralyzed man, he's tense because he wonders if he's going to walk in a moment. He, he wonders what's going to happen here, if, uh, how it's going to work out. You know, all the crowd was tense. I mean, because they can sense what's going on here, the conflict and all. You know, there's a tension in the air. You could probably cut it with a knife. The poor homeowner, he's tense. He wonders how much it's going to cost to repair his roof. <laughs> and you know those four guys up on the roof, they're tense because they're going, we can't hold him that much longer. Jesus, you better do something quick. You know, the only one who wasn't tense was Jesus. He was at perfect peace. So he said, arise, take up your bed, go to your house. And what happened? Immediately he arose. And Jesus' power to heal and his authority to forgive sins were instantly vindicated. Imagine what it would have been like if Jesus had failed. There he is. He says to the man, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and walk. And the man sort of struggles and then slumps back down into the stretcher. What would happen? We see the crowd, don't you, in the room? They let out of a, a groan. And then they just start walking out. One by one. There's nothing more to see here. Why even listen to this man? You see the scribes in the room, don't you? They've got big smiles on their face. And they're saying to one another, we knew it. We knew that he doesn't have the authority to heal or to forgive. You have the the poor, paralyzed man. He looks more dejected and embarrassed than ever. You have the friends up on the roof wondering what they're going to do. Then you have the poor homeowner. He, he's wondering about his homeowner policy and if that roof is going to get fixed. But Jesus didn't fail. He could not fail because all he needed to heal this man was his word. And there's wonderful healing power in the word of Jesus. And Jesus pronounced this word and the man received it with faith, even if it was the borrowed faith of his friends. And he got up and he walked. And don't you love what it says? If you notice there, it says he took up his bed and he walked. He went out. Now, you think about it, it would be a hassle to take up your bed and walk, wouldn't it? I mean, why not just let your four friends carry the bed? They've already got it attached to ropes. You've got to get that thing down, carry it under your arm. You've got to, you know, roll up the stretcher. You've got to untie the ropes and all of that. Why bother with it? Your friends will take it home. Why did the man go to all the trouble of taking up his bed and, and leaving with it? Well, very simply, look back here at verse 11. Jesus told him to. I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go your way to your house. So if it was a little extra trouble, that's okay. It's what Jesus told me to do. So I'll do it. I'll walk out of here. I'll walk out of with my bed, and I'll do it. And everybody's amazed. They say, we never saw anything like this. They saw the power of God in action. Friends, isn't it wonderful to consider the great power of our God? I just wonder if you can make the connection here this morning. We saw the great power of God that Jesus displayed with the leper, right? 
We saw the great power of God that Jesus displayed with the paralytic, both to heal him and to give him forgiveness. You wonder about the connection between the power of God and the prayer of Jesus at the beginning. You know, isn't that what we need to, to really receive and to walk in the power of God? We need to draw closer to Jesus every day in our lives, in that solitary place where we're in the Word to listen to God and where we pray to Him in the solitary place to, to commune with Him. That's where Jesus received that power. That's how Jesus exercised His power. That's where Jesus is going to pour out His power into our lives. Do, do you want the power of Jesus? Do you need the power of Jesus in your life? To, to cleanse you from something that's unclean in your life, to give strength to some legs or some aspect of your life that, that's just powerless, or to pronounce forgiveness where there has been sin. You need the power of Jesus in your life to do those things. You'll find it in the solitary place, both in his word and in prayer with your father. He's waiting to hear from you. He wants you to grow in that. And let's pray that the Lord would help us all to grow in those things. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for how you've met us in your word this morning, and we bless you for that. But Lord, we pray that you'd meet us now in this time after the word, and that you'd pour out your spirit upon us to cement in our hearts the things you've been speaking to us. Lord, we don't want the seed of the word to go forth and to be quickly plucked away. We want it, Lord, to be implanted deeply and to bear great fruit in our lives. Father, I pray especially for those this morning. They, they need to get back on track when it comes to spending time with you, with a devotional life with you. Lord, I pray that you'd free them from a sense of oppression and guilt, but you'd give them a sense of freedom to walk forward in what you want them to do. Pour out your spirit upon us as you bring us to a point of decision this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.